0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 17th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act was an error of gigantic proportions as the U.S. slid into its greatest ever economic collapse. Protectionism was precisely the wrong prescription. So argues Douglas Irwin in his new book, Peddling Protectionism. We spoke following a forum for his book held last month. Help us understand the environment, uh, that led up to the passage of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act.
1: Well, you might recall the the 1920s was called the Roaring Twenties because it was actually a boom uh, period for the United States economy. Uh, Industry was growing very well. uh, Unemployment remained low. But the farm sector was very weak. Uh, and so the smooth hawley tariff actually has its origins not so much in industries pushing the government for higher tariffs to block imports, because industry was doing very well during this period. It had to do with agrarian discontent, and the Republican leadership decided, well, we're going to throw a, a bone to the farmer, so to speak help them out uh, by imposing a tariff on imports. That's how it sort of got started. And the problem was is that most farmers were export-oriented. They sold their crops overseas rather than face a lot of import competition. And once Congress got going on this, they raised not only tariffs on agricultural goods, which really didn't help the farmers very much, but on in industrial goods as well. And the protectionism uh, just went amok in the U.S.
0: Was this act the beginning of, of other of other subsequent pieces of legislation, or functionally did this law just do things that people uh didn't really uh, foresee.
1: Well uh it's interesting you mentioned foreseeing the effects because a thousand economists wrote to uh President Herbert Hoover asking him to veto or not to sign the uh Smooth Holly legislation and he turned them aside. But uh it, it was a sort of a standalone piece of legislation. Economists really did predict what would happen. Trade would collapse, there'd be increase in trade friction, other countries would respond and retaliate against US exports. It wouldn't help out farmers uh at all. And uh, yet, it, it passed. The depression got worse, and the reputation of Smoot-Hawley just went down the tubes from there.
0: Now, this law came in the middle of a whole host of activities that uh, President Hoover and Congress were involved in. Uh, people wrongly say that Hoover was was some of a, he was a laissez-faire kind of guy. Uh, they don't realize that uh, he was spending like a madman to try to to fix. Uh, the slide into depression. Uh, and Smoot-Hawley, I guess, was just a part of several other pieces of legislation.
1: That's right. Uh, the Hoover administration really tried to respond um, in very ineffective ways uh, to the Great Depression, passed a lot of legislation, uh, spent money, created the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, tried to bail out banks and what have you. None of it worked very well, but he certainly wasn't inactive in just letting the economy slide.
0: How did Smoot-Hawley interact with the fact that the United States was in this uh, slide?
1: Well, uh, it was passed towards the beginning of the Depression, and its proponents, Smoot & Hawley, said it would actually help mitigate unemployment and revive the economy, and, of course, the economy just got much worse. Partly that is due to Smoot Hawley itself. Uh, a lot of countries retaliated against the U.S., so that meant U.S. exports fell just as much as U.S. imports did. In fact, exports fell even faster than U.S. imports, so it really added to the contractionary impact on the U.S., and it bred a lot of ill will against the United States. Um, other countries resented the fact that here was the world's largest economy, a creditor country that was trying to uh, get other countries to repay their debts, and yet we were stopping them from in terms of their ability to repay those debts by earning the dollars that they needed to pay back those debts. So other countries resented it. They s- struck back at the U.S., and the whole world trading system sort of collapsed in part because of this act.
0: FDR, Cordell Hull, Uh, These people, Democrats and Republicans, through arguably through President George W. Bush, have largely been free traders. What does Smoot-Hawley represent uh, historically?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, Ever since uh, Roosevelt, um, uh, presidents have sort of looked not to any particular section of the country in terms of what their trade interests are, but try to figure out what is the national interest in terms of trade and have supported trade liberalization, getting other countries to reduce their trade barriers as we reduce ours through the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and and what have you. And presidents from Democrats, from Lyndon Johnson, Bill Clinton, to Republicans, uh, Bush and uh, Reagan, have always hearkened back to the days of Smoot-Hawley as a, a, a bad thing that uh, Congress did uh, in terms of trade policy, and that we want to, they, we're trying to warn people away from protectionism, uh, the siren song of protectionism, which sort of seems there's this allure that it might help the economy, but really in practice uh, makes things much worse.
0: A related question then uh, what is the legacy of Smoot Hawley?
1: I'd say there are two legacies. One is the immediate legacy, which is it was quickly recognized as having been a mistake and when the democrats came in in nineteen thirty three president roosevelt um, uh, they passed uh... the reciprocal trade agreements act in nineteen thirty four which transferred authority over tariff rates really from the congress to the president congress almost sort of admitting that we really messed up didn't do a good job And we think the president should have some authority to reach trade agreements to try to unravel the mess that's been created uh, during the Great Depression. And that's really been US trade policy since. The president has some negotiating authority, usually conditional on on Congress granting it, and has tried to pursue through the GATT and other arrangements uh, freer trade around the world. So that was, certainly was not what Smoot Hawley wanted, but that's certainly a legacy. And the second legacy is just one of historical memory that uh, people bring this up time and again as a, an example of what not to do in terms of trade policy.
0: If you looked at the Republican uh, stage for the GOP nomination in 2008, you saw some people who were defending things that sounded an awful lot like Smoot Hawley. And if you looked at the Democratic stage, Uh, as people tried to pursue uh, the nomination for president, you heard a lot of uh, Smoot-Hawley-type things. Are we at risk of slipping into something? Uh, uh, Are we at risk of forgetting the lessons of Smoot-Hawley?
1: I certainly hope not, and I think not, because I think the world is quite a bit different than it was in the 1930s. Notice those candidates will say, I'm in favor of free trade, but it has to be fair trade. That's a little bit different than Smoot-Hawley, where we're just out-and-out protectionists. So I think they try to qualify their language saying we do have a stake in the world economy, but there are all these exceptions and we're going to create trade barriers to manage all those exceptions. Um, Donald Trump uh, was one exception perhaps to that where he said we're just going to have an across-the-board tariff, although it was mainly going to be aimed at China of 20% or something like that. So uh, I think the fact that... uh, um, we're much more engaged in the world economy than we were in the 1930s. Um, we're uh, both a big importer and exporter, and I think Congress recognizes that there's a lot of trade-offs to be made. It's not just going to be one way where we can just stop imports, and that's the end of the story. In addition, with the World Trade Organization, we have some rules. The U.S. has a stake in those rules, and uh, under those rules, other countries can retaliate against us. So one of the problems with Smoot-Hawley is they didn't really realize or anticipate that other countries would retaliate against us. Now we know for certain other countries will if we move in the wrong direction.
0: If you looked at Republicans and Democrats running for president in 2008, there were a lot of defenses of things that sounded like tariffs, uh, trade protections for domestic industry, um, and as you note in 2012, <laughs> we may we almost had a at least one candidate who was uh, pushing that. Uh, kind of idea explicitly um, can you talk are we in danger of slipping into into that again
1: i think that uh... during presidential election campaigns uh... there's always a temptation on the part of candidates to try to pander to sort of the nationalist instincts of keeping out imports reviving the american economy um, many candidates have tried that in the past john kerry as a democrat in 2004 walter mondale in nineteen eighties ross perot in nineteen ninety two But I think that I hope that uh, presidents, once they take office, uh, that they really look for the national interest and see that we are engaged in the world economy in a productive way and that this would be damaging, counterproductive, and, and not help the economy at all.
0: How has President Obama performed on the trade issue?
1: I think he hasn't done anything, which is I, th- I think is a great fault because we have a number of uh, trade agreements with Colombia, Korea, and, else, and other countries that are just languishing. Um, he's shown no leadership at the WTO in terms of the Doha round, and I think it's because the Democratic Party, his constituency, is divided over trade. Um, The labor unions and others don't want any movement whatsoever. Uh, Other uh, 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 constituents do want some movement, and so they're just sort of stultified into inaction.
0: Douglas Irwin is author of Peddling Protectionism, Smoot Hawley, and the Great Depression. You can watch the full book for him at Cato.org.